Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Tony Bonner has a striking presence. He exudes abundant energy and maintenance of the matinee idol looks that propelled him onto an international career. His immediate fame came as chopper pilot Jerry King in the iconic television series Skippy, the Bush Kangaroo. The series became universally acclaimed and brought adoration for the cast, but Bonner's extensive resume is more than Skippy. It boasts impressive work that spans several decades across stage, television and film platforms. The son of an actor, Bonner's early forays in the theatre saw him commence work as a dresser for J.C. Williamson Productions. It was not long before he was seduced by the stage and the colourful folk who graced it. His television credits extend through Australia, the UK and the USA. These have included Cop Shop, Skywise, Hawaii Five-O, Murder, She Wrote, The Persuaders, The Rockford Files and Neighbours. He has worked alongside and befriended screen legends Tony Curtis, Kirk Douglas, Charles Bronson and Roger Moore in an impressive list of films that include Soldier of Fortune, The Man from Snowy River and The Light Horseman. The prospect of Agent 007 may have come his way, if not for the dogged demons that persisted in his early years. Tony Bonner is candid in his reflection. He is brutally honest in recalling the triumphs and troughs of a colourful life. And he tells it all with immense charm, humour and survival. Yes. So you, you found it all right this morning? But no uh, yes, yeah, fun. yeah. There was no problem in finding it. But, um, and I have to admit, because uh, I know Henderson Street pretty well, I taught a lot in this area at various acting academies. Uh, and I know Redford pretty well from the old days when I was on the drink. Uh, was it, was it yeah. a, a hangout, uh, a regular... Not so much Redfern, more um, uh, a pub in in uh, William Street, Darlinghurst, the Gladstone. That was a big theatrical pub in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Very big. If you're looking for an actor, you went to the Gladstone or the back bar of the Rex up in Maclay Street before they pulled that down. Well, that's uh, interesting. That's a time before internet, of course, and yes. phone oh, yeah, calls, yeah. And, and, and agents were just getting started, I guess. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Agents were around in Sydney uh, by then. There was, uh, Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, agents go really back to the late 40s, early 50s. Agents started, like professional agents. Gloria Payton. Gloria, June Kahn, uh, Telecast, Nora Burnett. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then Bill Shanrahan started, uh, and Bill was big to begin with because he had Mel Gibson, you know, after Mad Max and the the success of Mad of Max, uh, so Bill uh, Bill was big, still is, but back then, in the seventies, Bill was about as big as you get. Now it's the United Morrissey's, um, you know, different different gang of of agents now. Uh, or maybe mine, David Smith, Smith and Jones is kind of good. Uh, so the actors would hang out at pubs. And, pubs. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> you oh, knew yeah. you were going to catch find oh, someone there. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, you were forced, not forced. You drank because it was a, a, a kind of a rite of passage. It was as silly as it may seem. It, it was expected. Uh, if you were a colourful drunk 
as an actor, you were invited everywhere because, rightly or wrongly, you added some sort of dimension of colour or excitement to some boring dinner party or gathering, something that this outrageous actor would say or do something. And then many of those actors, uh, including yourself, I guess, mm. were functioning alcoholics. Were, you bet. Were still able to work. And, you bet. Yeah. Was it talk of Billy Hunter? and? Well, I drank with Billy, God yeah. bless his little soul, uh, for maybe 30, 40 years. Uh, I got sober. And Billy, uh, Billy was really the first to not protect me, uh, but to endorse and applaud what I'd done. You know, I'd still meet Billy in the pubs, wherever we were, Sydney, Melbourne, Britain, wherever I was working and Bill was working, uh, uh, I'd see the Huntsman and I'd meet him obviously in a pub. Uh, and Billy would be the first to order me a lemon, lime and bitters or a Coke or a squash or something and announce with uh, absolute pride, oh, Bones doesn't drink anymore. You know, and Billy said it not in any sense of uh, a put down, in a sense of good on you, Bones. You know, you got a chance of probably living longer than I am uh, going to. Because um, he, um, his father was a publican too. Mm. He grew up in pubs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, his dad died, passed away as an alcoholic, and Billy had it kind of in his, uh, in his psyche, in his genes, in his. DNA that that's how he was going to go, you know. Uh, 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 during a long Melbourne period when I did a lot of films and theatre and, and television in Melbourne, probably over 20 years, um, I got Billy off the Terps for a little while uh, and I took him to the gym I used to go to on Saturdays and play quite heavy squash competitively. Yeah. Uh, and Billy would go in the pool because uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people um, Billy was a international uh, 100 metre swimming champion uh, at one stage he held a world record right. um, I mean to watch Bill in a pool was like watching liquid gold or, or mercury yeah. you know just that so I'm a swimmer I'm a surf swimmer not a pool swimmer and to watch a pool swimmer with that just glide the, the beat yeah. and the glide uh, it's like watching mercury and bill was like that mm. you know uh, um, and he got you know for the next month or two staying off the drink um, he got really back into shape mm. you know and then whatever happens in all our lives um, he went back on the drink you know um, and carved a career as one of our great, well, the country's yeah. greatest actors, well, screen actors. Well, yes, yeah, um, yeah. Um, uh, Bill, as with all we alcoholics, Bill could have, should have done more, as I should have, could have done more. Uh, but a drink always got in the way, you know. Do you regret those lost opportunities? Can't regret anything. I, I'm fortunate when I went into rehab in detox. Uh, my past was with me. The errors of my way, the folly of my way, were kind of never going to be obliterated. Uh, all I could do was, if I ran into someone that I 
did said something uh, uh, under the influence of alcohol that I uh, regret, I would apologise for. Uh, if if those good people accepted that apology, uh, that was wonderful. If they didn't, uh, I'd been schooled enough in my rehab, in my uh, detoxing, that that's all I could do. I, I could only make the apology. If it wasn't accepted, not to beat myself up about that. Uh, what, uh, but I'd made the effort to right whatever wrong uh, that I may have done. and. Uh, and it wasn't a lot of wrongs I did. I mean, I was noisy. Uh, I broke up, I suppose, a few dinner parties and, uh, <laughs> uh, well, not so much fights, but starting arguments or uh, disagreements with someone on the, on the other side of the t- table that uh, I took some offence offense to. And I shouldn't laugh now, but... Uh, they were over silly things. When you're an alcoholic, someone can say something to you 20 times until you have that one drink too many and they kind of say it again. And you turn. And you've turned. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and the reaction is quick and completely opposite to what you may have answered five minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it was it was like you had your finger on a trigger all the time you just didn't know when you're going to pull that trigger and you can't waste energy pondering on what might have been because you know I, I talk to people and I read that you, know, you could have had a huge international career mm. you could have been a James Bond mm. yeah. yeah I ran from that yeah. I was actually working with Roger Moore God love him uh, and I do and I did because he was just one of those human beings it was impossible not to like or, or love. Yeah. In a, charming. In, yeah, it was yeah. charming. Yeah. And you knew there was no agenda behind that smile of Rogers. You know, he wasn't uh, a bit like a student of mine who's now a very fine young actor, uh, but started with me, Daniel McPherson. Oh, young yeah. Daniel has a smile that just says... Lights up a room. Yeah. yeah I'm a good spirit. I've yeah. got a good soul. And... Uh, uh, Roger was the same and we met uh, on the set of his show and Tony Curtis's show The Persuaders uh, I went on as the guest lead in that particular episode uh, a Dutchman that was trying to assassinate the British Prime Minister uh, we got along in a heartbeat um, and we remained that way all uh, his life Whenever I was in London or whenever he came to Australia or whenever we ran into each other in Los Angeles or Switzerland or somewhere, um, it was like make it meeting a brother. You know, it was, uh, it was great. So Roger and I were both called up to London from Pinewood uh, to see Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman about Bond. Um, Robert Redford at that stage was just becoming a big star with Butch Cassidy in the Sundance Kid. Newman was already a star, an established star, and quite rightly so. Uh, but Robert Redford was in that partnership with Paul Newman, uh, was suddenly this good-looking blonde actor. Uh, and Cubby and Harry then, and I'm talking like 1970, I suppose. Um, this is the Bond to replace uh, Connery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
they were kind of saying, will we cast another dark-headed person or will we... Um, Oh, no, no, no. Connery was... There were a couple before... Uh, oh, uh, before Moore? Lazenby was there. Lazenby was, right, right. yeah, because I knew George in yep. London and I suggested that Georgie zip his mouth, mouth and just get along with people, uh, which was always difficult for George back then. Yep. Uh, um, so, yeah, George had that run briefly and Covey and Harry wanted George to be successful um, uh, and he was just a bit difficult, George, and uh, without the right to be difficult. You know, I mean, George, all George had really done before that was male modelling, which I'm certainly not putting down. Yep. I earned a few shackles in my life in the early days in Sydney from uh, grabbing some work from David Jones or Farmers or someone. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, so... Um, Roger and I were called up to London to see Cubby and Harry about Bond. Um, and the, we were spoken to about going through to Los Angeles to test and do all that. Um, and because of my low self-esteem, uh, which has been really my main hurdle all my life, um, I got scared of actually getting it. I got scared of, uh, which is still my problem, of success. Uh, I mean, I ran from success as much as I ran from failure. Yeah. You know. Uh, so I scooted off to Spain. I finished that episode of The Persuaders and I scooted off to a friend's bar in Santiolalia del Rio on the island of Ibiza and got drugged for a couple of weeks. You know, uh, living in a little pension there. Um, it's a form of a, a escape, yeah. uh, the alcohol. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. Guess, a crutch. Yeah, absolutely. How old were you when you had your first drink? Uh, I would think somewhere around 13 or 14. Right. And that's, Which seems to be a, ge- a starting age for a lot of men. Right. Uh, because the parents say you can have a glass of wine at I dinner think so, or, or try this beer. Or something, yeah. you know, you know, you sit upstairs and at a party time and you, everyone gets drunk with the parents and things downstairs and you nick down later and knock off a bottle of something and um, but 14 seems to be at the hundreds of AA meetings I've attended all around the world um, and when uh, someone gets up to share it's surprising the amount of times that that person will say I was 14 when I picked up my first drink, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. Um, and some human beings have the physiology to, to stop. Yes. And others just become immediately engaged. Well, yeah. I mean, I was, an, uh, tragically to a degree, one of those people that could drink for a couple of days before... Uh, Feeling drunk. Yeah, yeah, before the effect hit me or yeah. before uh, my motorcycle riding became dangerous, not only to me, but to obviously anyone else. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so yeah. 14 was the beginning. Where'd you grow up? In Manly, uh, where I was this morning. I swim most mornings at Manly. I was born and raised in Fairlight. Uh, my grandfather was the mayor of Manly. and um, So that's where I, I started the journey and learned to swim in that pool at Fairlight. 
You've had a long association with the Surf Lifing Surf oh, Life yeah. Saving Club, yeah. Yeah, my, gran- my, my grandfather was the first president of the Manly Life Saving Club, or then it was the Surf Life Saving Club. Um, it's now just the Life Saving Club. In 1911, uh, the club split between uh, a social swimming group that just people that just wanted to socially swim, and another part of the club that wanted to do patrols and to be of service to the community. Um, so the club split, uh, split, and the social swimming club became the Manly Surf Club, and we retained the Manly Life Saving Club. Uh, um, so that was 1911, um, when my grandfather was the first president of the Manly Life Saving Club, and I've had the honour to be president three times uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, I'm still a director of the club. I'm a life member of the club, and. Um, yeah, it's the it's it's certainly a being of service to uh, the community, but it's also the absolute passion and love for salt water and the ocean and the the clarity it gives me. I mean, if I've got a decision to make, I will, and I'm a soft sand runner. Uh, I'll go down and just have a jog up to Queenscliff or something in the soft sand, and I'll I'll resolve what I need to do, or or a decision I need to make in that jog and when I come back to the club I've made a decision and that's you know it's just something I do I live by the water in Turkey when I lived in Turkey in Spain in Los Angeles I live by the water at Pacific Palisades um, I just have that love for so that's your happy place yeah absolutely yeah, yeah just the salt the smell of salt and uh, the ocean and uh, the breeze and um, yeah do you still do patrols I, I haven't for the last two seasons, right. uh, but I did up until two seasons ago. Uh, I had a pretty big operation uh, 15 years ago that's kind of caught up to me in conditioning, and it's uh, just a di- bit difficult for me to get what's called a proficiency, uh, which is a run-swim-run that every lifesaver must do uh, to be proficient to be on patrol. So I kind of beach manage, uh, and I do a lot of stuff around the club. So, uh, how did you amuse yourself as a as a child, as a boy? Were you a sportsman? Yeah. So, no. the, so the surf in the sand was the yeah. No, the I most wasn't. A, I wasn't a sportsman uh, at all. Uh, I nearly died a couple of times uh, with asthma. Uh, uh, my total childhood memory is uh, of battling to breathe. Uh, either my older sister, who's no longer with us, uh, or my mother. Uh, of just pushing my chest up and down, my my diaphragm, just to, uh, I panic a lot. I'd much rather fight 10 guys in the back lane behind your place here than have someone hold me down and hold my nose and mouth. Right. Uh, I panic. Uh, so, yes, I, uh, I have claustrophobia. I'd much rather walk 10 flights of an apartment than catch a lift. Uh, even even coming up in your third floor, <laughs> yeah. I was whistling a happy song. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not not good in small small spaces. Right. Do you still have asthma? Um, I say no, but uh, I have yeah, I have a, a breathing problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, when I go on when I'm was v- v- very fit. Uh, I mean, I would jog, you know, two or three kilometres in the soft sand, and then I'd have to stop and walk just to get my breathing back. I was running, kind of running out of air, which sounds may sound funny. But I had to get my breathing back 
and then I'd jog again until so I just pushed myself but as a child no I didn't uh, I wasn't uh, a kind of sports person uh, my brother Hilton was he was an extremely strong fit uh, person uh, and Hilton and my dad who was a big strong former sportsman former actor and all that but uh, uh, dad and Hilton were real amigos because of uh, uh, their shared uh, interest, shared interest yeah. and their fitness and their um, so uh, I mean I was 11 or 12 before I just kind of made up my mind that I had to get on with this and so I just started jogging uh, boxing uh, started playing football rugby league uh, played it at a pretty good level a pretty tough level uh, out in Marrickville in the suburbs uh, which was pretty tough back in those days Marrickville, Tempe, Sydney, Emmore, Newtown uh, I played in that league Henson Park was my home ground I love yeah. it uh, I still go to Henson Park if I'm any, driving anywhere to, through the western suburbs uh, I've I got to swing past Henson Park yeah. uh, I can still hear my studs we used to have metal studs or uh, aluminium studs back in those days I can still hear my studs coming out of the dressing sheds uh, on concrete at Hanson Park and across the bike track. There used to be a push bike uh, track around. I can still hear the clinking going over as before we hit the, the grass to go on the field. Uh, yeah, the, uh, Henson Park was a great oval. Still is. So when did artistic expression into your life? Oh, um, it sounds like it wasn't there during oh, childhood. It was, it was always there. Yeah? Yeah, it was always there. I... My father, as I suggested, was a leading actor for J.C. Williamson. He worked with the great Callaway brothers and Sir Robert Helpman, or Bobby Helpman back then, and Gladys Moncrief he sang with. And So you were going to the theatre to see your father perform? I didn't, no. Uh, no. Um, uh, Dad gave up performing not long after I was born, and uh, by the time I was of any appreci appreciation, you know, at five or six, He'd, he'd kind of left the theatre and was running his father's iron uh, iron foundry in Ultramo. We had an iron and steel foundry there, the Globe, and uh, Dad was running that. But I, I used to live in his old makeup kit and his dressing, and uh, 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 he had wigs, and uh, I, I remember them vividly, uh, playing around with those uh, things. And, um, yeah, I was always... Because of my asthma, my mother said to me once, Tony, I could take you into the middle of the city, sit you down somewhere and just say, stay there, I'll be back. And she could go off shopping. Yeah. I mean, she didn't, yeah. but she could. Yeah. And she would, but she would do it in Manly in the Corso, uh, not so, because we were down there, but not so much in the, in the city. But uh, uh, I've always been and still am, uh, someone that, that watches life uh, I've just had this great happiness in being able to quite happily sit and watch people not in, in an intrusive manner but for the way they walk the way they laugh the way they ate the way they smoked the way just various ways and, and I was kind of cataloguing things which I've used as an actor over the years when I've 
when I am thinking of a character I'm about to play, I always give the man I'm about to play a backstory. And I'll dig someone out of my life that walked in a particular way or, or, or had a, maybe a speech impediment and, or something. You know, the way they, someone would sit there and, and with a two shilling piece, a two bob bit, just twisted in his fingers. Became uh, mutiny. Yeah, became mutiny. <laughs> Very similar sort of thing. Bogart and his marbles. Yeah, yeah. Bogart and his marbles. And so, you know, and I still do it today. Well, as human beings, we all have those idiosyncrasies, don't uh, we? We do. Yeah. And so, I store them away, yeah. hoping to play a man one day that I'll dig something of interest out in his background that I'll attach to him, uh, I hope to give him another la- uh, layer. Dimension, yeah. Yeah, another yeah. dimension of, uh, that will never be spoken about in the film, will be never referred to in the film, but it'll be re- I'll know it. Yeah. And, uh, and I've done certain things where people have said to me that have seen the film or the television or whatever, you know, I love the way you did something, whatever I did. And I, I'd say, oh, yeah, because I'd kind of forgotten about it, what I'd done. I, I get kind of locked away a bit when I'm on a film set or on a stage. I can stay in the moment. I can be that person. Yeah. Uh, and not here when you're doing theatre, you know, someone... A phone, a mobile phone goes off these days in the theatre, mm. and I'm, I'm not one of those actors, and I've been in the theatre where a phone has gone off, and the actor on stage has noticed the phone, and I, I really, I don't like that, mm. because now you're allowing the audience in to you, where you should be able to sit on that stage, and that fourth wall is sacrosanct for me, yeah. uh, because I think if I can look. Into a, and my children have come to, when they were smaller, uh, came to see me in, in quite a few plays. And uh, someone in the cast or the stage manager or something would say, oh, I see Chelsea out there or I see Madison or I see Sky or Hannah or someone. Yeah. Uh, and I say, oh, great, are they there? And they're, they're there, but I... I don't see them. No. Some actors can do that, and others uh, dare. I dare not look into the yeah. into the audience because you suddenly your your brain is somewhere else. You're well, not in the moment. But, that, but that's how that's you, when you can make mistakes. You bet. Yeah. I mean, that's when you freeze. Mm. That's when you look back at the other the other actor on stage and you think, is it your line or my line? Yeah. And if that happens, you're you're kind of dead in the water. Yeah. So I mean, I teach that to my uh, my students. I, I just I implore them to stay in each moment. Don't get ahead. Don't get behind. Don't. I don't want you thinking about what, how you muck something up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't ed- editorialize as you're going. Just be. And I don't want to see you act. I want. I want you to be the character. Mm. Don't. Don't act. I don't want to see you act. You know. Just for that film. I mean, the longest you're going to do a scene, unless you're doing a classic and it's a one camera or something. Uh, I mean, a two-minute scenes pretty long before there's a cut or an edit yeah so i just say to my guys and when i'm directing you know just be this until you hear cut yeah yeah you know because sometimes at the end of a scene you know you and i playing a scene together and you may have the last word 
and and if we've been into this scene between the two of us, that moment will hold. You've got to let it resonate. You've got to let it because I may just intuitively uh, ad lib something yeah. that that's not come from me yeah. has come from within the character. And some of those ad-libbed lines in films are the classic lines. Mm. Because they're organic. They've come from Absolutely. A, an authentic place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and that's all you have to do. You know, you just have to be in that moment. Um, I know when we were doing the Anzacs, a, a 10-hour min- miniseries that I did, oh, it was in. Wonderful cast, uh, great art direction, very good direction from the kind of four directors that were on the uh, the 10 hours. Uh, uh, and it was just a joy to do. Uh, and I shared quite a lot of the times with uh, Paul Hogan, who played one of my larrikins in my platoon. Um, uh, uh, and Paul and I, you know, had some kind of emotional journey for the man I played, uh, the officer I played, especially with the background that I gave him, not that the writers gave me or the producers or the directors. Uh, I I said to the directors, uh, this is what I'm thinking about. This is Armstrong's background. This is where I placed him in in my head. Mm. Uh, And so when we do certain scenes, uh, if, if you can hold the shot before you cut it, because this is what I'm thinking, uh, uh, and it was it was interesting because I I gave an element to Lieutenant and then then Captain Armstrong that I told no one uh, except two of the directors uh, when certain scenes came up that I wanted to play this aspect of of the man, uh, and it was great. Mm. It was great. Mm. Uh, because what I did in these particular, I mean, all the scenes were really f- terrific and the actors were terrific. But these these couple of moments, these couple of moments in that I attached this background that I gave this man uh, resonated so much with the actors I was working with that they dug something out that they didn't think they were going to dig out of themselves. Yeah. Uh, and those moments were a joy to play. When when you know the scene's finished, you know the looks, the feel, the touch, whatever has happened in the scene has happened, and in the editor, editing room it'll be cut before that. But the director and the first assistant director have kind of got themselves locked into the scene. Yeah. And then to hear a director or a first assistant director say, oh, shit, uh, cut, cut, cut. Because <laughs> they're that, so involved. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's a joy. It can be very rare for an actor, too, to be 100% satisfied you with bet. what they've done you in a career. Oh, yeah. I could name them five fingers in nearly 60 years now. Yeah. That's kind of why I don't go and see... Unless I'm there to help, you know, promote the film or the television show, of course I'll turn up at all press gatherings and media gatherings and 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 promote the show. But once the lights go out on opening night, 
I'll be out of my seat and out in the foyer. Hmm. Uh, I'll go somewhere. In the old days, I'd go up to the bar uh, and wait till the picture was finished and then I'd... Because it's... I knew what I needed to to learn from the manner in which I worked in that film or that television that I needed to add to the next time I worked. Back to being a boy. Yep. And discovering acting uh, for the first time. I mean, you, you're, you're finding solace at the uh, by the water. You're observing oh, yeah, people. No, no. Well, I, fa- I found it. Uh, Was it a happy childhood? No. 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 Uh, no. Uh, and this is not the forum really to go into it, but other than I, I, I had really low self-esteem. I was uh, knocked around a little. Uh, uh, by a, a, a fellow that man who didn't quite realise, and I've never apportioned blame to him ever. This is your dad, yeah, right. uh, because he had a drinking problem as well. Right, uh, and I knew the manner in which, uh, even as a wee boy, I knew the manner in which the car drove into the carport or the door opened that the storm was about to blow through the house, and I knew I just had to stand for. Uh, Protect your mum, I guess. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, because the next morning, out of the bedroom would come this big, smiling, happy fellow. And uh, without obviously knowing, I, I, I had to know that there was something going on that was beyond my thought that six hours earlier there was a storm in the house and now there's not a storm uh so what happened uh and it took me a long time and you would have thought and it happens a lot to uh, uh, recovered alcoholics or recovering alcoholics that they came from alcoholic backgrounds or homes uh, and you would think people like us would never pick up a drink. Yeah. And we all do. Yeah. You know. Is it in the DNA, do you think? Is it- I don't know, in all honesty, what it, what it is. If it's something... Uh, I, I, I honestly don't know. But you would think that by the age of 16, I would have been drunk many times, and I would have thought, holy crap... I'm just going, I've got to break the, the, the chain here. I'm going down the same road as my mm. dad did. Mm. Uh, so you think with some sort of intelligence, you would not continue. Yeah. You know. Uh, but it gets hold of you and there you go. Well, there you go. Mm. Yeah. Early forays into the uh, entertainment industry, mm. I believe you started off as as a dresser, a wardrobe supervisor well, at J.C. Williamson. I did. Yeah. God love it. I loved it. Um, uh, but I started... what Where I really started, I think, um, for a year or so, when I left school, uh, I worked for a company in, in Clarence Street City, just down from the town hall, called Oswald Seeley. And Oswald Seeley was like... Disneyland for me. When you walked into Oswald Seeley, 
all you saw in this shop was it a department store or well it was a store right more than a department store a bit like gowings maybe or? yeah not as big as that right Oswald silly yeah uh, but it sold all the display material to the window dressing departments oh, right, yeah. of all the stores yeah yeah so everything in here everything that could possibly sparkle uh, so all, all set design all set design yeah, yeah. autumn leaves uh, dead branches um, Christmas themes everything and Easter yeah. so it was like me standing the first time I walked into an off license and here was <laughs> an acre of alcohol yeah. uh, when I walked into Oswald Sealy I stood there and I thought holy hell this is uh, and I got a job there as a salesperson. Uh, so a display, a window dresser, or a display manager from Farmers, David Jones, Beber Falls, wherever, would walk in and say, oh, we're doing spring windows. Uh, what have you got that's new? What blossoms? What What have you got? What murals? What cover? And so you'd show them that, or it was winter or whatever the, 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 the festive season was or change in the, the climate. Uh, and so I, I absolutely loved it. And then I heard there was a window dressing through by working here, obviously. One of the window dressers that I knew came in from Beber Falls, which is opposite the town, or was opposite the town hall. Now it's Coles or whatever the hell it is now. Um, and said, Oh, they're looking for a, a junior over in, in Beber Falls. So I thought, Wow. So I went over and applied, got the job. Uh, and this is where, which I speak about a little, a little bit to my students, this is where I, th I think I began the journey as an actor of developing, of seeing, of visualisation, because I was given, to begin with, those small windows down in, in Town Hall Railway Station. Right. They were all Beber Falls window, display windows down there. Yeah. So the big ones up on Park Street and George Street were the feature windows, obviously. And the, the smaller windows down where you walk down to catch the train were, you know, windows the kind of size of that area there, you know, like five metres by four metres or something and about four metres deep. Uh, and I'd be given these to dress, you know, and uh, the display manager would say to me, oh, Tony, in this window, we want white goods, uh, washing machines and white goods. Uh, and that one around there, we, we, we're going to put whatever it was, electrical things or clothing or whatever. So you would, I'd stand outside there with people walking past to get the trains and I'd look at this empty space. And I would think, now how am I going to make this interesting? How am I going to stop these people that are walking past? You go, oh, that's interesting. Catch your eye. Ca yeah. What am I going to put here in this window beside the washing machines or whatever the hell I've got to put in there? But how am I going to stop them to then have them look at what I'm trying to sell them? Yeah. Uh, so I would come up with a concept either with lighting or um, a mannequin mannequin dressed in something, in, whatever it was. Uh, and I would do a kind of sketch uh, and think, yeah, that'll be great. That'll be great. Uh, 
then I go to the other window, and then I go to somewhere. If we we go, I'd go up to our display room, um, and we'd had millions of things in the, uh, our display room. But if I'd seen over at Oswald Seeley some new something, I'd say to the display manager, "Can can I buy a couple of those bits for this window?" And if it was in the budget, they'd say, "Yeah, you bet." So, so, and that's what I've done. As you're an directing, actor. you're designing, you're well, that's what I've done with envisaging the characters. a world, yeah. 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 I, I've thought, what's going to make this man interesting? And again, that's all I say to my students. Oh, not all. I mean, part of the million things. Uh, you must find something interesting in the man. Yeah. You know, what you, you should be not doing, but at least thinking about that when you're not on that stage... Or when you're not on that screen, subliminally, subconsciously, you 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 need the audience to be saying, "Where's where's that guy going?" Because he was interesting, the character you're playing. Um, so you've got to become a little interesting in life. You know, you can't just turn this on or off, mm. or you can, but then you're acting. You know, these sort of things I'm talking about have got to happen organically, intuitively. Uh, that if you're going to feel something, I need you to feel it, not act it. Uh, so you've got to live a little. You've got to hit your finger with the hammer, putting a nail in, to know what what it feels what it like. Feels like. <laughs> uh, so I'm not suggesting if you're going to play a murderer, you need to murder someone. No, no. But I'm suggesting that you need to talk to people that understand what happens so you can start putting together this man. Uh, It's an emotional life, a physical life. You bet. Intellectual life. You bet. You bet. Tell me about J.C. Williamson shows, um, Sentimental Bloke, Cinderella, The Great Waltz. Oh, Noel Ferrier. (laughs) (laughs) Robbo, the great John Robinson. John Robinson, yeah, yeah, who was stage managing at that time, was he? He was, yeah, yeah, he was. Were you auditioning or were were you... No, no, no. Somebody see you and say, hey, do you want to do a musical? Oh, well, well, no, it doesn't quite happen like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was, as you mentioned... uh, 10 minutes ago, I, when I was working in Oswald Seeley, I thought, uh, again, for some reason, someone told me or I'd heard uh, that they were looking for dresses at the old uh, Her Majesty's Theatre uh, at Central Railway there. Um, and I thought, wow, that's great. I can earn another, that was still pound shillings and pence back then. I think they were paying the great sum of three pounds ten or something silly like that a week. Uh, and the second I walked through the stage door in Key Street, Railway Square, I felt at home. Yeah. The second I walked through that door and a, a, a very elderly and portly door manager was on through the day that I went in there, uh, said, uh, you know, uh, are you looking for a son or whatever he said to me? Uh, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm applying for their dresses job. Uh, and he said, oh, the wardrobe department's up on the first floor. Uh, he said, uh, what's your name? I need it for the sign. At the I said, uh, Tony Bonner. He said, you're not Fred Bonner's son, are you? And I said, yeah, I am. 
And he said, you know, your dad played in this theatre many times. Uh, and I said, yeah, I do know uh, that. Uh, in The Student Prince, Desert Song, um, Lilac Time, um, Chocolate Soldier, uh, all those shows with Gladys and Luke Calloway. Max Oldacre. Max Oldacre, all that. Uh, in the 30s, 40s. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is... This is my home, you know. Uh, and I went up and got the job. So I turned up uh, of, of a night to, uh, uh, to be a dresser. It just fell into place for me. It was, it was simple. I, I, I kind of intuitively knew what the actor needed and the space he needed and in helping, uh, you know, in dresses, um, uh, really are there to help an actor in and out of quick changes. Mm. You know, uh, you come off stage in a certain outfit, uh, you know, and in very short time, uh, you're back on uh, with a different scene happening and, and, and different clothing. Uh, uh, so I kind of, yeah, I was a good dresser because I knew what needed to be done and uh, uh, the, the, the ease of which it should be done and the, and the order in which things should be done. Uh, and I, I used to ask the, uh, the actors then a lot of, which I still say to all my actors today, I asked a lot of questions. Why did, why, why do you stand here when you say, because I'd watch from the wings. The actor would go on stage and I'd watch from the wings. Some, this, is, this is your school, I guess, too. There's absolutely. no training. It's there was no training no. back then. Mm. You know, the only person that was starting was Doris Fitton had the independent theatre in North Sydney. NIDA wasn't around. Uh, the Actor Centre obviously wasn't around. All the academies that are there was nowhere to train, you know. Uh, so you learnt by doing it, making mistakes, picking yourself up, not making that mistake again, and getting on with it, uh, and asking questions. You know, why did you? You know, I noticed tonight you're there. You, last night you sang the song from here, or you did. Uh, and an actor, you know, actors they'll have to talk, and so if you approach an actor genuinely wanting knowledge yeah. I don't know the actor in the world that doesn't want to give it yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I asked all the actors various questions whys, ifs, buts, hows, whys um, especially I remember a fellow Edwin Steffi who came out when we did How to Succeed in Business without really trying what a show, fabulous musical um, and Edwin played J.B. Bigley with this wonderful bass baritone voice uh, and these wonderful jowls that Edward Groundhog. Had. Yeah. Groundhog. It's Groundhog. <laughs> uh, what a show. Another show. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I was quite, and I was quite, I was in that show, but uh, I still, even if I was in shows, I'd say to the leads, why, 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 why? And Edwin would say, you know, uh, oh, Tony, I, 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 I'm doing it this way because I found there's a dead spot at the back of this theatre that if I sing to that spot, I'm not getting the resonance back. So I will start the song there, the note there, and I will move across that dead spot. So there's obviously curtaining up there and something that's absorbing the sound, not bringing it back to me. Right. Uh, that, like the timber baffling in the opera A time house. before radio mics too, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. You sang from your own projection. You know, there was no mics, no little tricky mics up in your hairline or mm. um, 
hanging, you know, hidden uh, up off the lighting bars. So how do you move from dresser to performer? Oh, I did singing classes through the day. I uh, did some movement classes so I could, if the choreographer said, you know, can you do this or this? I, I was never going to be a dancer, but I wanted to be able to do a simple kind of time step or a um, something simple. Uh, so that's I did that. I took some classes. Um, well, with the show like The Great Waltz, were you required to waltz? Uh, no, well, I waltz, but waltzing, when you get that 4-4 four, four time, it's yeah. it's not difficult. Oh, oh. And, and the girls kind of led you a bit. Yeah, <laughs> a bit. Uh, yeah but I was mainly in the chorus, mainly as a singer in that. But yes, yes, because they had the dancing chorus and a singing chorus. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's all I did. I mean, I did some classes until Betty Pounder, God rest her brilliant soul, um, um, uh, um, directed uh, Annie Get Your Gun. Uh, I auditioned uh, as one of the cowboys, the singers, the chorus, uh, got in that show. Uh, then you hear of other shows. That I, I auditioned for the Black and White Minstrels down at the Tivoli, went down there. Uh, uh, then I did The Sentimental Bloke. Um, and then I think succeed after that, or the Great Waltz, and then succeed. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember. Um, so that's what you do. You know, you kind of. So after all that stage work, is there a weird mob? Your next. Well, that was my begin- first film right. that I've seen ever in. I'd done television, even while I was doing theatre, which you know obviously is only of an evening, uh, except for matinees, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. Um, so Wednesday, Wednesday was the only day where it was not dip, it was not easy to work on television um, because of the matinees. Because of the matinee, yeah, yeah. Um, but I did lots of early ABC Sydney uh, television. Uh, my first kind of really lead role, I suppose, was with the brilliant and wonderful Ron Hadrick. Uh, yeah. I mean, what a what a human being and what an actor, yeah. Ronnie. You know, with that voice of Ronnie's as well. Uh, and we did the Moliere play Tartuffe. And I played Valère, the young romantic fellow in that. And uh, obviously Ron played the lead. Um, that was the ABC. And uh, I did certain, uh, oh, lots of bits back then, television-wise. And then in, I think, 1964, we did There A Weird Mob. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's quite a cast. So it was, who's who? It, it was yeah. a heavyweight cast. Yeah. I mean, it was all the Aussie lead actors, not me. I mean, I was a young fellow just starting, really. Uh, but, you know, all the kind of Sydney lead actors were in it. Um, and so, you know, they, they cast me to play, because I'd done some stuff in the ABC or whatever it was. And they said, we'd like you to play this, this character, Tone, and down at Bondi, he's... Oh, I was doing... I'll tell you what I was doing. Now it's all coming back to me. I was doing uh, something at the Theatre Royal, the old Theatre Royal, the beautiful Theatre Royal that was yanked down. Um, what the hell was I doing there? Um, um, I might have been dressing. I, I'll remember in a minute. But I know I was at the Theatre Royal, and Johnny Mellion... Uh, was there in Gwen Plum. So it must have been Cinderella. It must have been Cinderella that I was doing 
They had a great cast. Max Phipps was in it Max too, Max Yeah, Max Rod Dunbar. Roddy Dunbar, yeah. uh, Alan Lander. Uh, yeah, great. Um, Which Ferrier produced, I believe. Yeah. The great, yeah. great crazy Noel Ferrier did. Yeah. yeah, what a crazy bastard he was. <laughs> but great. Yeah. I mean, his radio work with Mary Hardy in Melbourne, mm. I don't think they could play it today, what those two used to say. Yeah. On radio. Double entendres and... Oh, Sometimes single on top. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially Mary. Yeah. You know, she was a naughty girl, Mary. <laughs> and Ferrier was as bad. Uh, uh, so, yeah. So anyway, I was cast in, in Weird Bob, did that. And the first time you're appearing on screen in colour. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, so I finished that film and then went back to... Then I did... Uh, the. Uh, there was a wonderful music hall in Neutral Bay. Uh, and I did two shows there. Oh, and then I did a couple of shows down at the Phillips Street Theatre, the old Phillips Street, yeah. that did all the satire the and the reviews. reviews. Yeah. Um, and that was fabulous uh, down there. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years after Weird Bob and these other shows around town, uh, the producers of their Weird Bob and one of the lead actors from Weird Mob, Ed Devereaux, They'd formed a company uh, called, and John McCallum, who was, was the general manager. He was yeah. the boss of J.C. Williamson's. Yeah. They formed a company called Fauna Productions. They contacted me um, and said, uh, this is what we're doing, Tone. I knew them all, obviously, from Weird Bob. Uh, uh, there's a character there, a flight ranger, uh, that flies a helicopter and does this and this and this. And I said, oh, great, it sounds great. Um, I said, what, what's the format? What are you shooting on? And they said, colour film. And I said, before they said anything else, I said, I'll do it. Because to work every day as an actor back in the 60s on film was, I mean, you didn't do anything on film. Yeah. Everything was black and white tape or tape, yeah. you know. Uh, and so, we're talking about Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. Yeah, oh, Skippy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and... I think I believe you were in it for two two years. No, no, no. I I did it. I did it for one year. Had a fallout. Right. Not with my good friends there. Not with Dennis Hill, who was actually the guy that came up with the concept. Um, uh, Lee Robinson, who I loved dearly, producer. I did a picture for Lee up in Singapore and Tokyo uh, on the Australian Z Special Forces, the Second World War. Um, uh, love those guys uh, but a couple of the other board members uh, I had a kind of an agreement with them when I started because the money money was nothing when we started um, and I said look I, I love it uh, happy to do it for that money but if the show kind of takes off if it becomes successful you know let me have a little bit of this, yeah, yeah, Tone, you know, of course, mate, you know, mate, Digger, China, Bluey, all the uh, uh, Aussie stuff. Uh, so the show, we shot the pilot, showed it to Sir Frank Packer. Uh, Sir Frank loved it, showed it on his wall in his office. You know, he said, I'll buy it for the Nine Network. Uh, so with Sir Frank's power and, and promotion behind it and the magazines and the papers that Sir Frank owned, uh, I loved him. I, I, I love Sir Frank. Tough, yeah. uh, great guy. Um, 
so the show bang off it went uh, not so, only in so, Australia oh, a, a worldwide well, release that's what I'm saying yeah, yeah. it opened in England bang was a success Japan they went crazy about it and, uh, and probably the first show to have extensive merchandise I remember having a skippy uh, lunchbox there were tea towels yeah. jigsaw puzzles lunchboxes there was everything and this is what I'm saying at the end of that first year it was kind of obvious that the cast of characters who yeah. make it special yeah are not recognized yeah yeah. Uh, oh, yeah yeah absolutely so I went into the boardroom uh, one night after we came back from filming uh, and I brought the topic up because I said you know I'm getting uh, getting near the end of this the first year uh, now we're going to put into place what we discussed Oh no, that that was not. Oh, did we did we talk about something? Did we? And I looked at them, not my good friends in there. Yeah, yeah. I looked at them and I thought, yeah, bastards. Yeah. And I said, well, life's easy. Thank you. It's been a great year. I wish you success. Uh, uh, at the end of my next episode, or whenever it finished that first year, um, I'll I'll be off. And they went, oh yeah, I sure, of course, Tone. As if some actor was going to leave. The most successful television series made in Australia, uh, airing in prime time on Sunday course, nights. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so they presumed I would get over my little f- hissy fit and come back abjectly apologising for my rashness. He's uh, being a diva. Uh, yeah, being, being a drama <laughs> queen, uh, which I didn't. Uh, so I left. Uh, they then, for the next two years of that show didn't mention to the general public that I'd left the show, didn't take me off the credits of the show, uh, did nothing. Uh, I went on, Was I got, the character of Jerry King still no. referred to, or did they have old, was, fo- old footage they put in? Or? Uh, no, 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 he was referred to, but whenever they needed then the helicopter for production value, uh, Eddie Devereaux, and Ed loved me and I loved Eddie, but Eddie would say as the, the, the boss at the, the, the park, oh, uh, 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 Jerry's down in Sydney at the moment doing a course on something, so we better get, <laughs> we better get the stand, stand-in chopper pilot. So, uh, you know, an actor would come up and play the chopper pilot uh, for that episode. Uh, but they never explained why Jerry was never in the show. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, You'd I think they could even recast the role or something, but didn't, didn't, well, <laughs> well, the character I played was kind of popular, and, right. and they didn't want to, they didn't want to do that. So anyway, I mean that's life. You learn, uh, and lots of agents learned learned from that era uh, of mine because we didn't have agents doing our contracts back in those days. Uh, so agents learned very quickly to make sure all those kind of clauses were in contracts about residual money, about merchandising, about all that stuff. Yeah. So none of the actors from that show, the original show, received one penny from the profits that that show's made for the last uh, 55 years. Oh, it's still on air. Still on air. Yeah. It's still on Channel 9 late at night. Yeah. Still running in probably, at its height, it ran in about 120 countries in the, in the world. At, the, at this moment, it's still probably playing in 20. So all that money still comes in 
to Sydney and the producers get that money, which I'm not knocking at all. But it would have been great if they just had have said, you know, we've, we've made, let's just give that little bit to the actors. Yeah, 1% each or something. Something. Never did anything. You know, and that's all I ever said. When we went to court, uh, you know, I had a barrister, Rick Mitry, who kindly, pro bono, said, this is outrageous. Uh, uh, and I said, well, yeah, and he, and he said, I'll, and I said, well, I can't afford you, Rick. And he said, no, no, no I'm very happy to put my office on and do some things. Uh, and, and my take at that stage was, if they had have phoned me at any stage when I left the show in the next kind of 50 years, said, oh, Tone, can we buy you a cup of coffee and a ham sandwich? Uh, something. Yeah. They never did anything. And I thought, wow, uh, I know Eddie passed away, a very upset and angry man, because certain, uh, certain uh, promises were made to him as well, that uh, it's, it would seem were never, uh, never eventuated. So. Show business. Show business, mate. <laughs> have it in black and white, have it solid on a contract, uh, or forget it. Wine and women and song will only make me sad Love and kisses and hearts, a thing I never had If it should end, I don't mind If it should end, I will cry What shall I do? You recorded the cover of a Bee Gees song. I did. Wine and Women. I did. How did that come I about? I was honoured when the European Bee Gees fan club got in touch with me and said, uh, you have recorded a song uh, of the boys. Um, uh, we'd like to honour you with it. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm honoured to have done one of the Bee Gees. And I knew the boys when they were little. Right. When they first came into Surface Paradise in about 19... 19- 63, uh, they were singing in a coffee shop uh, uh, in in Surface Paradise. Um, I knew Barry reasonably well. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, when, uh, during that year that I did Skippy, Festival Records got in touch with me and said, are you interested in recording? Because they knew I could hold a tune and sing because of the work I'd done with uh, J.C. Williamson's, uh, and I said, "Yeah, I'm a, I'm a ballad singer primarily. I'm not a, uh, a rock and roll singer. I love rock and roll, but uh, I'm a ballad singer more than anything." So Joe Halford, who produced the album and produced a lot of of the stars for Festival Records back then, uh, we picked kind of fifteen or twenty songs, all basically Australian, uh, and. Uh, uh, I think Warren Carr, who was a pianist and entertainer, uh, I think Warren did the uh, arrangements. Um, uh, I was still finishing up on Skippy. I was still shooting there. Joe got in touch with me uh, and said, we're going to record the album t- on Saturday. And I said, OK, great. But this is the naivety and the beauty back then. I mean, we didn't record that album for weeks or months. 
We did the whole thing on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I'd, I'd never heard the backing tracks until I put the cans on in the studio and Joe was in the control room and would play the backing track and then I would hear kind of the overture and I'd go, uh, the mic, what song's this, Joe? <laughs> and he'd say, oh, this is, uh, you know, whatever. And I'd say, oh, okay, fine. Because I'd never heard the intro. I'd never, you know. So I'd, I'd listen to it and listen to the track, listen to a key change. I thought, I'd think, oh, boy, that's a difficult key change. <laughs> And so I'd listen to it, and then we'd record it, you know. And we did the whole album on the Saturday, uh, 14 songs we did, for were, memory. Were there hopes that you might have charted a music career? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I did, you know, I did a couple of the variety shows then, Barry Crocker show. Yeah. Barry was a great mate, and still is. Uh, uh, I did one of the songs uh off the album on barry show i did i did a couple of bandstand and you know the shows that were around at that period uh i think so but you know it was i had a kind of an engelbert humperdinck type voice not as good as engelbert uh and i didn't have the range of and the power of tom jones um but a couple of the tracks uh, i thought quite good uh and it went okay, it sold pretty well. Uh, when I got into London, after I left Skippy and then went to London, uh, uh, I recorded for Apple. Uh, I did three, uh, two demo tracks for Apple in London. I knew T Tony Bramwell who was running Apple at that stage. Um, and I've got those acetates still at home with the Apple uh, the logo. logo on yeah. um, Mystery Man. Uh, which is great. I love like Mystery Man. It was a track like uh, my friend, and I say it, uh, Richard Harris did MacArthur's Park. Yeah. Uh, and it was a track rather like MacArthur's Park. It was a storytelling five minute, because uh, MacArthur's Park in its entirety runs about six minutes. Mm. You know. Big narrative. Yeah, big narrative. And so this Mystery Man was a similar kind of track. Um, yeah, that yeah, was interesting. Well, through your career, you seem to have had a go at everything. Just about, yeah. Including being a male centrefold. I did, the first one. I mean, Jackie Thompson, who's a great mate of mine, Jack, um, uh, Jack did for Cleo, or Dolly. He did the first for them. I did the first for, in 1972, for... Um, um, Cleo, Cleo, No, not no. Cleo. No, the, the good Cosmopolitan. One. Cosmopolitan, yeah. the American one. Bert Reynolds did it in America. It was the birthday edition of Cosmopolitan. Uh, Bert Reynolds did it in America. I did it here in Australia, Asia. Uh, uh, John Davidson, an actor, did it in England. And uh, some guy, actor in Italy, did it for Italy, Europe. Uh, so is it all hanging out or are you you're discreet? Oh, it was a, discreet, a discreet vase. Yeah, like. discreet And the guy that shot that is my <laughs> oldest pal, John Waddy. Right. John was uh, one of the great photographers, and still is. Yeah. Uh, John uh, shot that center spread for me. Uh, and lots of covers for Vogue and uh, Harper's and Cosmo, John has shot over the years. And I was doing Cop Shop and Skyways and Carson's Law and all that stuff in Melbourne at that stage. With the great... Crawford production. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I that was a great time for, for oh. actors, wasn't it? 
that um, I did I did the homicide specials uh, uh, solo one uh, started cop shops started skyways did those for a year before I left those shows um, uh, Melbourne Theatre Company uh, Manfred Snowy River uh, oh and the great Bruce Beresford film uh, The Money Movers that we shot over in Adelaide the picture was set it was based on a true story set here in Sydney of an armoured car robbery um, but it couldn't be shot here for legal reasons and all that kind of stuff so it was shot in in Adelaide and that was Brian Brown's first film right. uh, The Money Movers uh, great cast good film actually it's a very good film at Crawford's, is it, is it like the, uh, the the MGM Studios yeah. and you're, you're an actor on the books and the, yep. oh, we'll put Tony in this show. Kind of, yeah. 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 The, the, Once you're auditioning to get in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They know they, what they want to do with you. They, they did. And they they used a lot of the similar people in each in the various shows that they could that could play like the tough tough guys or the whatever. Yeah, the, the casting department at Crawford's uh, kind of knew who they were going to cast in shows. Yeah. That's why I was saying Gus Mercurio uh, when we were chatting earlier. Gus, God bless him. Uh, uh, Gus, he played, he, he came out in 1956 for the Olympics uh, and stayed. He loved it here, you know, and became a boxing uh, trainer, judge, uh, referee, and actor. I mean, he did. I did a lot of work with Gussie, uh, man from Stowey River. He was one of my guys in uh, Stowey River. Um, he did Cash and Company, a kind of interesting... Uh, Is that the Goldfields? Yeah, yeah, Goldfields. It was yeah. kind of an interesting Australian-style Western. And I played, uh, I played a swordsman in that, Lord Cardigan's, one of Lord Cardigan's fellows. Um, we did do a lot of those great period uh, series, mm. and miniseries mm. also, Term of His Natural Life mm. and Sarah Dane and mm. Against the Wind. And All that. I love period work. I mean, yeah. you know, I've done... We don't see a lot of it now. No. No, people don't want to see... It's expensive. ...costume drama. Yeah. Well, it's expensive yeah. because you have to build all the sets. There's no kind of sets for that period. There's no wardrobe. You've got to have the wardrobe made or hired from the Elizabethan Theatre or, or, or in the old days from... Uh, J.C. Williamson's their hire department was very busy, you know. Um, yeah, there's not a lot, lot of period work done. I think because of the cost, yeah. and I don't think people want to see that much period work anymore. They want uh, shoot 'em up, car crashes, uh, Mad Max. Uh, um, yeah, they want action-driven material more than. Well, the ABC, I hope, and SBS uh, retain that charter of shooting historical work. I found a clip of you on YouTube uh, in a car chase. Oh, did from you, Malta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you do your own stunts? Yeah, I did that. Yeah, yeah I do my own horse stuff uh, when I can. Sometimes I've had to sign uh, a waiver uh, because the company can't have me if I'm playing a lead actor, getting hurt and the picture not getting finished. So sometimes I've had to sign uh, something. Uh, but yeah, that was a, a, very, a really interesting film uh, with Lionel Jeffries, really fine English actor, yeah. did The Railway Children. Um, 
Oh, a lot of work. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Yeah, chitty, yeah. chitty, bang, bang, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and the, the fellow that was chasing you in the car chase, I, I he was a Bond villain, I think, Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, I forget uh, the actor's name. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was, uh, um, gosh, I remember the whole cast. I mean, uh, Susan George was in the picture, and Susan became a big actress uh, in England and then went to America and became um, um, quite quite successful in, in, in America. I spoke to, strangely, Susan a couple of days ago. She uh, has Arab horses. She breeds in England now. Um, um, yeah, um, I'm just trying to remember those two guys. Uh, uh, oh. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. Especially the guy in the in the police Land Rover that was trying to kill me. Run you off the road. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was a hairy little thing to do. You know, because it was around the cliffs at Dingley there, and smashing into that stone wall and bouncing back. Uh, it was great. I went through two and a half of those cars doing that one stuff. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you recall the moment you met Tony Curtis? I can. Uh, I met him uh, smoking a joint on the back steps of the Hilton Hotel in Istanbul. <laughs> uh, we'd flown from London through to Turkey to do You Can't Win Them All, a film with Charles Bronson. Uh, uh, I, we're all in the Hilton Hotel there, the whole picture, the production company, the wardrobe department, and I left and we'd flown in from London. Uh, I was up in my room that I'd been allocated. I thought, I've got to get down and have a drink. And I thought, well, I'll just walk down the back stairs, the fire stairs and get into the bar and no one will see me get out of the lift in the lobby and go into the bar. Uh, and I was wandering down the, the fire stairs and I smelt that uh, <laughs> familiar aroma. And then uh, two floors down, uh, there was TC uh, just sitting on the back stairs, <laughs> having a little... Chilling. Yeah, just chilling. <laughs> and I sat down next to him and I said, uh, Tony, my name's Tony Bonner. and..." an actor from Australia, and he said, uh, you want a little whack on this? <laughs> and I said, you bet. Uh, and we remained great friends. Yeah. Uh, from that second on, I got great shots with Tony when, he's, when we're on horseback, uh, uh, with his arms around me, trying to yank me off my pony. Um, uh, because, yeah, so because when that film finished, I went back to London to do... Uh, um, no, to Malta to do that f next film in Malta. Then I went back to London, and by then Roger and Tony Curtis were doing the Persuaders, and TV was, series. Yeah, the yeah. TV series, and that's when I was cast, uh, uh, as I was saying earlier, uh, on the Persuaders. And then Roger and I were up for Bond during that period. But I used to see Tony. He lived in Belgravia uh, um, or Cadogan Square, uh, Cadogan Square, I think. But uh, yeah, I just I'd roll past his place and just knock on the door on my way to the. Was he with Janet Lee at that time? No, he no. was he was with uh, 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 Leslie, uh, a Bostonian model. Right. Uh, Leslie, uh, oh, I forget. Uh, uh, but she was great, great girl. But uh, yeah, no, he was great. He was a great fellow. He was the funniest guy I've worked with. Uh, he always thought he was Cary Grant. He used to do Cary Grant all the time. Well, he does that famous Cary Grant in uh, Some Like It Hot. He does. Yeah. 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 That was his favourite favorite when he uh, 
uh, we'd be just mucking around in Turkey or wherever we were. He'd go into Kirk Rand and <laughs> he, he was great. He was a he just had that twinkle in his eye. He was a he was a bit of a, a larrikin, you know. Creatures that the world forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Picture yeah. in Africa. How did he become a prehistoric man? Well, well, again, there's a bit. I was talking to you. I don't know if we we're recording or not. You think about the man you're going to play, and you—that's how you become him. You, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, it's the manner in which I work. Again, it's you think about when I was asked to play that character, which I think that his name was Two Mac or Two Muck. Um, I just say to myself, what if I was him? Or what if I was Lieutenant Armstrong in the Anzacs? Or what if I was Kane in, in the Matter of Snowy River? Or what if, what if I was this man? That's how I think. And I think until I kind of say to myself, I am that man. Uh, and the character flows. And I hope there's some reality in what I do. Um, because I'm not acting that man. I'm, I'm being him in the manner in which... Uh, I think he should be in con consulting with the director of course uh, if he's happy with what I'm doing uh, then yippee yeah. uh, but that was what interested me with that film was that um, there was no dialogue as such the film was structured with actors improving uh, a sound or an aggressive stance or uh, closing bo uh, space between people. Uh, yes, so, oh, so it was I, interesting. I haven't seen the film, but I was yeah. very curious as to what the uh, mm. the dialogue would have been like. Because well, the, the, the as English, such, there was none. English language wasn't invented. None. Uh, well, of course not. Uh, or any language. Well, so it was grunts. kind of silly. Mm. So, so if you, uh, it's a bit like Ch uh, Chaplin. You know, you knew exactly what Chaplin was doing, thinking, feeling by his body language, by his, you, you knew it. And so in a sense, that's what we did. And there was a, a, a group of, you know, talented actors that saw this as an interesting challenge in creating uh, familyhood or enemy or, or suspicion with, with a, a sound uh, that reflected that emotion. So, yeah, it was interesting. Plus, Africa was fantastic. I just loved being... I ran a lot in Africa. Uh, I ran with one of the stunt guys there, Yanni. We used to run with... Uh, I had a forty-five handgun, and uh, we'd run uh, just with runner sneakers on, um, uh, and we came across some wildlife, uh, mate, uh, running across uh, Africa in certain places, uh, and hit some rocks sometimes where uh, big cats had just been with because the urine was still there wet uh, in the African sun. So it was, uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Loved every bit of Africa. Um, in the UK and the USA, we see a, a plethora of roles for yep. vet veteran actors. Yep. What's that about? The industry in Australia is not so good with our, our older actors. Man, if you're over 40, you don't exist in this country. You know, and you're right. I mean, when I did, I did two episodes over in Los Angeles um, of Murder, She Wrote, uh, which was beyond great. And that that show 
was the, the actors were cast who, that you are talking about. Yeah. They're all, all what they call marquee actors. That means your name was on a marquee, usually outside a theatre. Yeah. Um, and all those actors, uh, and so I was really honoured when I was cast by CBS uh, to play, um, especially the the, uh, the first one when I played the, um, the British secretary uh, in Washington, um, uh, Jenny Agata played my wife in that, and Jenny was, uh, I mean, she's fabulous. Uh, she's now in uh, Call the Midwife, isn't she? Correct. Yeah. The Mother Superior. Yeah, yeah, correct. So Jenny was my wife in that that particular episode, um, and working with that uh, unbelievable lady. Uh, uh, well, Lansbury was about sixty when she Angela uh, was. Yeah, you know, uh, and she again, Angela and I kind of looked at each other at a rehearsal, and we just got on you know she just gave me that that without that voice that kind of measly uh, voice she has uh, and when they had the uh, they had a pun- uh, function there at the Biltmore Hotel uh, where they invited a hundred of the actors from the whole series guest leads and uh, and their management and that to come to this dinner for Angela uh, I took my manager and great friend at the t- uh, still Christina uh, Phillips, uh, and we're sitting in the wonderful ballroom of the Biltmore Hotel. And if you ever go to LA, go to the Biltmore. It's a classic, beautiful Art Deco, uh, very famous hotel that lots of. Is it where they had the first Oscars? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and I was at a table of ten. Uh, Len Cariou, who's a great actor, yeah. uh, was on at our table. Um, uh, Len and I did the the episode together. Um, so we're sitting there, and Angela came in uh, to the room to, to sit at her table, uh, and it was just wonderful. She looked over, and she walked over, uh, and she stopped at, with me and said, "It's great to see you here, Tony." Uh, and I thought, wow, what a what a lovely moment to have uh, that woman uh, recognise you being there. And yeah. uh, uh, my manager, Christina, said, "You don't get that tone. That's uh, that was that was kind of nice, Great. you know." So yeah, she was wonderful. Well, Tony Bonner is a, a hell of a story. Have you you thought about penning your autobiography? Oh, uh, well. I uh, I have for no other reason than over the years, you know, when I was on the drink and um, I'd be rambling to someone, and you know, a thousand people have said, "You got to write all this down, man." You know, uh, because I've been around so long in Australia now, it's kind of nearly the history of Australian film, theatre, television. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did my first work in 1960, you know, uh, which is a long time ago. Yeah. You know, and uh, I've, I've seen f- theatre, film, television change uh, and singing, you know. I mean, I knew John Farnham when he started, I've uh, known Barnsey, uh, a lot of the guys back then that all started back in the 60s. 
that are still alive. Um, so, uh, yeah, a publisher came to me, uh, Alan and Unwin, uh, years ago and said, uh, uh, you know, we'd be really interested in you doing this. And I said, well, uh, thank you. Uh, but I don't think I can. Not that I don't have the ability um, to write, but there's so much during my drinking period that I had blackouts that I've, uh, I'd forgotten. Uh, I'm going to have to go back uh, and dig up people to say, what the hell did I do? <laughs> or what did we do? Yeah. So, and I said, I just don't think I can do it. I don't want to, you know, do that. Uh, but I said, if you're interested, um, uh, I've just read a book uh, that a writer has done that uh, um, I don't know if you you like him. Uh, I don't know if he's written any biographies or uh, before. Um, uh, his name's Matthew Condon. Uh, and uh, Alan Unwin said, oh, we love Matthew. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I'll get in touch with him and see if he's interested. And so I did. Uh, the publishers gave me his number and I phoned. I said, Matty, this is Tony Bonner, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you mentioned me in one of your books, uh, which he did, which was funny. Uh, and, and I said, are you interested? He said, you bet. So. That's been a journey now for quite a few years. We just work, he phones me, or when he's in Sydney or when I go up to Queensland, we sit and have a coffee. I um, mean, he was one of the editors and the feature writer for the Courier Mail. Now he's that for the uh, the Australian. Um, he's just won some awards for a trilo trilogy of uh, Queensland his, uh, political history. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a, I, I just like the manner in which he writes, yeah. and he wrote an article about me for the lift-out section of the Australian years ago, or oh, the Courier Mail, I can't, I can't remember. But my daughters read it and said to me, Dad, whoever this guy is, he got you. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay. Um, so when it came up and I asked Matthew, um, so that's, that's being done now. Uh, Have you thought about what you'd call it? Oh, there's a couple of, yeah. There's a couple of names that I kind of came up with, and I've, I'm, I'm not going to be wedded to any of them. I'll leave that, to, in a sense, to Matthew and the publishers, uh, which is not Alan and Unwin at the moment. I don't know, Matthew's talking to a couple, um, because there's a mini-series in plan or thought as well, right. because just visually it'd be fabulous. Yeah. Covering all, all those the, locations, the, all the, well, but all the food changes and the clothing changes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I go all back to the tie dye stuff and the hippie stuff and, and the, the big beetle, beards and the, long the, hair. Oh, that. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, right through it all. Anyway, uh, a couple of titles that I had. Um, one was um, damaged goods, um, because I was or have been. Uh, uh, the, another one was that people used to say to me a lot, um, was I there? Right. Uh, because, you know, I'd see someone and they'd say, oh, Tony, holy shit, uh, what you did last night at some... And I'd say, oh, fuck, was I, was I there? And they'd say, yeah, you were there. So... Uh, Great. Yeah, it'll be something. Now, will you listen to this podcast episode? No. No? No. Do you watch your films? No. I mean, I'll go, I, 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 I see them on, well, I don't even see them on opening night. 
uh, I go because the it, I hope helps the uh, producers, the distributors, uh, for me to do some chats, some PR about what I've just done or been in. Uh, so you bet. But I, I will, as soon as the lights go out, I will slide out of the seat I'm given. I always kind of ask for a seat near an aisle so I'm not climbing over people. Uh, I just slide out and I'll, you know, go and wait in the foyer or go somewhere for an hour and a half and then come back. Um, yeah, I mean, um, and, and it's not for any other reason that I kind of know what I've done. I know what the script's about. and I mean, I don't go into a film or a television or a play unless I've read the script. Uh, I've kind of said to myself, would I go and see this film? Is this film of any kind of interest? Um, are the characters kind of interesting? Um, and, and if those questions are, are answered, then, you know, I'll ask who the other actors are going to be employed, who's directing, who's the cinematographer, who's the DOP. I mean, all those kind of five, six questions will be asked before I talk about money. Uh, and I usually don't. I usually leave that to my agent or something. That has never been... Uh, 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 the, the primary goal in doing anything. Uh, I've done lots of things for nothing, you know, short films, festival films, because I've I've liked that young director or that young filmmaker, and he doesn't have a bunch of money. Uh, I did a couple for a terrific young uh, director producer, Jenna. Such Jenna uh, uh, did her graduating films from the Afters. Australian Film and Television uh, at uh, Fox Studios. Uh, well, it sounds like it's come full cycle. It harks back to that time when you were a dresser. Yeah. Asking the actors in the wings. Yeah. Why? How? When? Yeah. 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 So, so giving back. Well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I teach a lot for nothing. Again, it's, it's not, the, the money is not the primary goal because there's not much, that much money in teaching. It's I do it because I love to see someone grow. Mm. I love to see someone watch them do something back in a scene that we've discussed and rehearsed and re researched and then they see that person on the screen telling a story you know uh, and that's all I say to them I said when you watch I've kind of never seen myself on the screen when if when I've watched something I'm, I'm looking at the character uh, I'm not looking at Tony Bonner because it's not Tony Bonner there, it's Captain Armstrong or it's whoever it is. And I'm, I go on the journey with them. Mm. You know, I'm not sitting there kind of reviewing or critiquing in a voyeuristic way me. I'm, I'm watching this character. If, if everyone's kind of meshing and there's a... And again, the way I teach and the way I work, I hope, as an actor... And I suggest to my students, what you're not saying in a film or on stage is the most important things. Hmm. I cut dialogue. You know, I'll go through a script and say to the producer, director, do you mind if I don't say that? Can I play that? I don't need to say it. You know, I want an audience to sit there and say it themselves hmm. Hmm. or about themselves. Hmm. 
I want to do something up there that affects someone sitting in an audience that they've been involved or done this or thought this. And I don't want to tell them my thoughts. I want them to relive their thoughts. The great power of the actor. Well, it is. Mm. Mm. It is. I mean, why does someone in an audience laugh or cry? Because someone on that stage or on that screen has done something that's manipulated the emotional journey of of the audience, of the viewer. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean... That was the old thing with Australians, young actors here, and I've, I've kind of belted a couple of my young actors years ago around the head about not, their desire not to get in touch with emotions. It's a bit, a little bit different now, but once Australian actors didn't want to cry, or didn't want to play a gay role, or didn't want to show weakness, you know, oh no, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, no, you fucking don't. Yeah. You know, uh, the best moment in this film is going to be when you're saying nothing, holding this mate of yours in a battlefield that's dying. The work you do there is going to be more important than some bullshit words you're going to say. So, and I still believe it. Let's hope Tony gets the biography off the ground and to the publishers very soon. It promises to be an enthralling read, defining an eventful life and a celebrated career on stages and screen. My guest today, Mr. Tony Bonner. In the next episode of Stages, we welcome my old mate, Peter Ross. I first met Pete during our time studying at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and he has gone on to carve a career in performance, direction and producing. We discuss his time as a producer and director with Kookaburra Musical Theatre and his present role as manager of the entertainment venues in Tamworth. Another insightful look at a life in the theatre. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time.